Well, at just about lunchtime on February 28, 1944, a cold, cold day, a detachment of Nazi forces burst through the door of the Ten Boom family home. An informant had betrayed the family. They were hiding Jews, a severe infraction in the eyes of the Nazis, and they arrested the entire family, including a girl named Corey. Her trial came three months later, where she would go on trial before the Germans. Those three months were spent in solitary confinement. Eventually, she and her sister arrived in a place called Ravensbrück. That is a a Nazi labor camp for women. That December, all the women in her age group died in the gas chambers, but a clerical error released her a week before. You can read more of her experience in a book entitled The Hiding Place, deriving its name from the place in their home where they hid the Jews. Now, in light of her experience she makes some astounding statements. Some of her quotes include, love is the strongest force in the world. Love is larger than the walls which shut it in. No pit is so deep that God is not deeper still. Uh, That last quote is often attributed to her sister, Excuse me, it's often attributed to Corey, but, but her sister made that quote. And her sister died only a few weeks before Corey's release from Ravensbrook. So in light of all of this atrocity and the terrible things which transpired, I need to ask, who talks like this? Who does not demand some kind of revenge? Who does not live with a a bitterness and an animosity and an anger against the Germans? I mean, I would say that this is almost alien, foreign. She's not like this world. And that is indeed because Corey Tinboom is not. She knew Jesus Christ. She was a Christian. To use the words from our text this morning from 1 Peter, she was chosen according to God's foreknowledge. She was born again to a living hope. She was tried, she was tested, yet joyful. Well, like Corey, you and I also are aliens living in a foreign world. We can only hope to respond like she did to the, the tests and the trials of her life to maintain that same type of godly attitude. That's not always easy. But if we understand certain foundational truths, it can really change our entire outlook toward our testing and toward our trials. I want you to see that this morning, and we open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Here, Peter gives two reasons to rejoice when our faith is tested. The opening verses of this letter have grounded us in our identity, who we are in God, who we are in Jesus Christ. And we are working our way verse by verse through this letter, this morning arriving at verse 6. But in verse 6, a shift occurs, something different than the first five verses. 
Peter now speaks about the impact of our salvation, how our salvation impacts how we live. And specifically, he speaks of a joy that you and I can retain even when we suffer. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In this text this morning, Peter explains that we may rejoice. Why, Peter? Why can we rejoice? It's our first point this morning. We can rejoice because tested faith is true faith. In verses 6 and 7, you and I can rejoice because a tested faith is a true faith. We heard here that salvation brings with it joy. When we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, along with many other benefits, comes joy. Yet I find joy as a concept somewhat difficult to define. Warren Wiersbe, for example, speaks of its abiding character. He says it's that inward peace and sufficiency not affected by outward circumstances. Amy Carmichael speaks of it very briefly. She calls it simply a settled happiness. C.S. Lewis frames in terms of, of our pursuit of it. Joy is an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. And John Piper speaks of the emotional element, the, the spirit influence. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. He causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And even though it may be hard to define, we just simply would add that you know it if you have it. Well, Peter points to its origin in our text. In this you greatly rejoice. Well, what do we rejoice in, Peter? In everything he just wrote about our salvation. Verses 3 through 5. We can just walk through those verses and check it off. We rejoice in God's great mercy in our lives. Our new birth or our conversion our living hope, our incorruptible inheritance, our protection by God, our future salvation. We've called this our new identity, and in that we greatly rejoice. Because personally, in my old identity, I greatly rebelled. I listened way too much in my former identity to what other people said. I listened way too much to the inner voice in my own heart, to the desires of my spirit. And let me tell you, you may have experienced this, that in that life apart from Christ, there are moments of happiness, but there is no joy, nothing sustaining. And that was true for me because I did not have Jesus Christ, and I did not have joy. I would say that my identity at the time was not formed by him, and it was not informed by him. 
And again, I think that's going to be true for everyone this morning to varying degrees. And what's also true in our passage is the reality of trials. Peter speaks about a joy, but he speaks about it in light of trials. I find that to be one of those odd pairings of the Bible. Joy and trials. Joy in trials. Charles Haddon Spurgeon described the two as currents in the ocean, just going different ways. On, on one level, you have the current of joy going this way, and underneath it, the, the current of trial. And they're both present there. They're both traveling. They're both alongside one another, yet they're distinct. That's the experience that Jesus had in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our, of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The author writes of our Lord, he's suffering with, with joy in view. But before we get to the purpose of our trials, Peter spends some time to, to describe their qualities. He tells us of their span, how, how long the trials go on. You know, you need to know this morning, believer, that all of your trials, they have a start and they have a stop. Peter gives us markers of time. If you look in verse 6, he says, now for a little while. Now note here that he is not saying, it's not a promise, that trials will always be short. Some may know that trials begin early in life and they seem to stay with you the entire time. It, it could be one major trial that you can't seem to shake. So the promise here is not that every suffering will always be brief but rather in comparison to eternity. Compared to verse 5, to a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Trials are short. Paul, a man of many scars, we might say, he calls them a momentary light affliction. If Paul said that this morning, you and I may very well reply, Paul, they dragged you out of the city because they did not want your dead corpse in the street. And you're speaking of light, momentary afflictions. Paul would say they're brief. They're for a moment. The span of the trial is brief in light of eternity with Christ. Peter writes, secondly, of their necessity. He adds a condition in this verse. He says, if necessary. Now, the assumption in the Greek language is that this condition is true. It's not a possibility as though there are some trials that are necessary, as though there's some Christians who need trials and others don't. That's not what Peter's saying here. It assumes the fact to be true. One translation says it this way, You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials. And every Christian understands that experience. In fact, from Matthew to Revelation, the Bible consistently preaches the reality of trials for believers. Peter writes thirdly of their diversity. He writes of various trials. That word various literally means a trials of many colors. And trials come in all shapes and all sizes, and trials come in various types and degrees and, and durations, and sometimes they come all together and sometimes in, in a sequence. But every trial hurts. And Peter writes fourthly of their impact, that trials hurt. They're distressing. 
They grieve us. The King James Version says, ye are in heaviness. See, trials cause us pain. And the Bible gives us permission to be sad and to be hurt. No one is required as a believer to put on a fake smile and say, everything's okay when it's not. The Bible acknowledges a full spectrum of human emotions, especially the Psalms. And trials are going to bring out all kinds of negative feelings. There's pain that comes with trials. The theme of distress is is part of this shift I mentioned in verse 6. You know, in the first few verses of this letter we've read, Peter's laying the groundwork. He wants to prepare the believer for distress. And and now in verse 6, all the way through verse 9, we learn that this distress, it's actually part of our experience as Christians. It's meant to do something. And that brings us fifthly to their purpose. In verse 6, the purpose of trials. And I would say, namely, that your trials have a purpose. No trial is random. No trial is accidental. No trial is arbitrary. No trial is ever wasted in the life of the child of God. God is in control of your various trials. In fact, no trial happens outside of God's umbrella of sovereignty over your life. In verse 1, he chose you. In verse 3, he caused you to be born again. It's not as though when the trial comes, he now disappears and fades into the background while you go through this trial apart from him. God is in complete control. And numerous examples abound of this through the Bible. I'll give you two. One of my favorite passages in the Joseph narrative, you may recall Joseph went to a pit and Joseph went into a prison, but we also know that Joseph did all of these things for a purpose. He tells his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Here's the purpose. In order that this present result would come about to preserve many people alive. And we know that the central event in human history was an event of purpose. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it was fitting for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. The author says that Jesus suffered so many would be saved. And Peter now in these verses is going to build on these trials. In other words, if he just gave us a glimpse into the purpose of your trial, what he's going to do now is, is, is open up that door. If so far he's just cracked the door on, on discussing it, he now opens it wide. He gives us next a purpose for your trials. And he gives us a reason you may rejoice. And I do say a reason or a purpose, because there are many reasons we have trials. I mean, we experience trials. The Bible teaches us to to deepen our humility. There are times that we experience trials as acts of divine discipline, where where God is coming into our lives as a father does his child to to change our direction, to discipline us. There are times in the Bible where we learn about trials that we go through them to help others with theirs. 
But in verse 7, we experience trials to prove our faith. That would be a big idea here this morning. We experience trials to prove our faith. Amen. You see that right away in verse 7, those first couple words, so that, those are words of purpose. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. In other words, suffering functions to prove the genuineness of our faith. Here, faith means faithfulness to God or our loyalty to God. And notice in the text where Peter turns to illustrate his point, he turns to gold. Testing your faith by trial is like refining gold. And the process of refiner takes just some, some mined ore, this hunk of rock, and he places it in exceedingly hot temperatures. And what happens at the end of that exposure is that, is that pure gold remains. The other elements, we would even call them impurities, they burn off. In Roman times, right around the era in which Peter wrote, gold would be placed inside an airtight clay crucible. And the genius of this is that they would mix certain ingredients in with the clay that are meant to draw out specific impurities into the clay during the heating. So all that you had left inside was pure gold. So as it got hot, these impurities would be drawn out. They'd set this crucible in exceedingly hot temperatures for five days. And at the end of that, they had pure gold, genuine gold, authentic gold. Can you see how this illustrates the testing of your faith? Peter was a fisherman, but he's a pretty good writer too, isn't he? He uses this imagery both to compare and to contrast. Peter compares your faith or your trials to refinement. The high heat of the furnace is your trial. You can sense how that, that fits, how it's a great illustration. Your faith is the gold. It's refined in that crucible. I've heard that saying, that the crucible of trial or the, the crucible of testing. And within this trial, the impurities are burned off. And the fire is proving your faith. And what it does in the end is it brings out the best. It brings out that which is genuine or that which is authentic. But notice, too, how Peter contrasts our faith or our trials to refinement. Gold is perishable, but your faith is not. By God's grace, it will remain. God is among the most, or excuse me, gold is among the most precious elements. But your faith is even more valuable than that, says Peter. Because one day the gold will perish, but your faith will remain. This morning, believer, you have faith, but your faith has impurity. It has not arrived yet. And that's going to be true for every one of us. And what God does is he refines us. He tests us by fire. This does not mean as we undergo trials that God is mad at us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. 
Because God loves us, he refines us. He's getting us ready for heaven. He's going to test your faith because he loves you, and he wants you to be a more effective witness for him. And he wants you to help others. He wants you to be stronger in hard times. He wants you to be closer to him, leaning on him. He wants you to be more like Christ. And I can't help but wonder if it's not in the hottest trials that we are most like Christ. But did Isaiah write about Jesus? He was approved and accepted by men, a man of happiness and acquainted with comforts. No, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And look at the result of this. It is why you can rejoice. There'll be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, when you stand before Jesus one day, it's going to be incredible. It's difficult to describe in words what that experience will be like. He himself will have much good to say. And you know, by the way, you will not find this out now, the world is not lining up to give the Christian praise and honor and glory. Those things come in the end, after we've been purified, after our faith has been tested by trials. You see, your trials have a point. They prepare you for Christ. And that's why we can rejoice. Because a tested faith is a true faith. I have one more thought on this, a few points of application before we shift into our second point this morning. Because I think that the experience for many of us is not quite this. When trials come, they tend to kill our joy. When trials come, we are not leaping with joy. It seems as though these two currents that Spurgeon speaks of, one is swallowed up in the other. If this is joy humming along and then trial comes, it's as though joy is swallowed and moved in the other direction. It's as though we can't feel joy at all and we sink right to the bottom. So what then? What do we do when our joy sinks to the bottom in trial? I think we need just to begin, first off, with the gospel. Am I believing the gospel? You see, the joy of the Lord, this joy that Peter speaks of, this is for Christians. This joy is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It's for people who repent of their sin and turn from it and say, Lord, I am a sinner, forgive me. Have you done that this morning? Have you turned from your sin and changed your mind about who you are and about who God is? That you are a sinner and God is a good God who will forgive you. And he gave his son Jesus Christ out of love for you. He died and rose again. Do you believe that? That is the starting place for the joy that he speaks of here. We need to become children of God first. Then we experience the Father's joy. Secondly, am I asking God? You know, if, if joy eludes you, ask God for it. It seems like a simple step, but we could forget to pray. Lord, grant me joy. Help me to find joy in my trials. 
I mean, again, God is a father who loves his children, and he, he seeks to meet their needs. It seems as though this is the, the kind of, of prayer that, that God would answer. It's not up to you and I to go at this alone or to try to muscle through our trial. No, we should be praying to God, not only about the trial, but the joy we should experience with it. Jesus says, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Thirdly, am I obeying God's word? Nothing will drain joy from the Christian life like unrepentant sin. Nothing will drain joy from the Christian life like unrepentant sin. Sin and joy, they do not coexist. Just listen to what Jesus says about obedience and joy. John chapter 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And you can hear in that the correspondence between obedience and joy. The two go together. Obedience to God's word, that's the key to joy. Well, fourthly, am I listening to the voice of God in his word? Or am I listening to other voices? In a book entitled Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones believes that our inner voice, it's not always the best counselor. Quote, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The loudest direction, the loudest voice in our lives ought to be the voice of God in his word. I'm looking back at our previous two messages here. We, in those messages, we addressed our identity, who we are in God. And God tells us who we are in his word. We are a new creation. We have a new identity. And when we lose sight of that, that's going to threaten our joy. All the other voices, all the other ideas, that's going to impact our joy. And this happens a lot in the realm of psychology. Maybe there's a sin or a problem, and and as a result, you're assigned a label. And that label is is who you are. You are that sin or you, you are that problem. You are your trial, so to speak. It could be anxiety or depression or whatever. Believer, that's not a lifeline. That's an anchor wrapped around our leg. It's going to take us to the bottom and hold us there. That's not the kind of freedom and liberty that we should expect in Jesus Christ. Because our identity is not in our struggles. It's not in our problems. It's in Jesus. You are a child of God. The Bible calls you a Christian. This is a fundamental shift in how we view ourselves. It's a fundamental shift in our identity. We should enjoy good counsel. We should get good advice. We should lean on our friends. But the loudest voice in our lives ought to be the word of God. Tests to prove your faith. They can curb your joy. But here we reviewed believing and asking and obeying and listening. We can rejoice because a tested faith is a true faith. Well, secondly, in verses 8 and 9, we can rejoice because true faith is rewarded faith. True faith is rewarded faith. In verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter speaks of an experience that he never had. You know, in his testimony, Peter would be able to tell us the many times that he saw Jesus as an eyewitness. He saw Jesus healing his mother-in-law. He saw Jesus calling to him upon the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He saw Jesus washing his feet in the upper room. Later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he'll call himself an eyewitness of his majesty. But for this early church, for you and I this morning, we've never seen Jesus, and we do not see him now. Yet something has happened, has it not? An unseen God has wrought an unseen event in our lives. And as a result, we now love Christ, and we believe in him. In fact, you may find that your relationship with him is deeper in terms of love and stronger in terms of faith than people that you do see. Blessed are they who did not see yet believed, Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 29. So what do we experience? He writes of this experience, we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Looking back at the beginning of verse 6, we greatly rejoice. We see it again here. Tested faith is true faith. Now, true faith is rewarded faith. There is a reward now in the present. This faith that we have, this salvation experience, it's not emotionless. It's not unfeeling. You don't inherit a poker face when you become a Christian. You don't need to be a charismatic, but you don't need to be a mannequin either. Hopefully, you experience joy. Hopefully, people in your life know you are joy-filled. This is a reward from God. Peter speaks about it in the present. Now we are receiving that joy. It's a reward right now in this life. And he calls it inexpressible. It's difficult to describe, but certainly it's experienced. And he calls it full of glory. In other words, it's something of heaven, even if it's in seed form in our lives. It's, it's a foretaste or a down payment of the, the joy and the glory to come in the life that, that comes. And, and here's the reason. He says, you're obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He's saying presently, right now, This is occurring. You are, you are being saved, we might say. We've, we've looked at this in a different way over the past few weeks. There's different tenses for our salvation. The Bible says that we, we were saved, we, we are being saved, we will be saved. It's, it's past, it's present, it's future. Peter writes this way in verse 3. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God that's in the past. In verse 5, our salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time, that's future. In our passage right now, verse 9, we are obtaining the salvation of our souls. That's the present tense. I think that this helps to then make sense of the entire passage. You know, for the Christian who's enduring trials, 
And for the Christian who's finding joy, the world looks at that as really odd. That is weird. But we know that the Lord is working at the core of who we are. He's working in our souls. And we feel joy even though the trials hurt. Again, a fundamental shift has occurred. Because we no longer view trials the way we used to. And we no longer view suffering the way the world does. Every one of them has a purpose. Every one has a design. You know, it's absolutely heartbreaking to watch unbelievers go through trials because they have no faith to refine. The purpose of the trial, as we explored it today, that, that is just not something that's attainable for them. They don't have faith in Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him. The greatest hope in their hardships is that they would repent and come to God, realizing that he is someone they can turn to in trial. But that is not so for you, not for the believer, not for the follower of Jesus Christ. You can rejoice because tested faith is true faith. And you can rejoice because true faith is rewarded faith. And if I could leave you with just one takeaway this morning, my hope would be that this changes how you view trials that you see one other way to view them, not as entirely bad, that God is up to good. He's refining you. He's preparing you. He's proving your faith. And if I could leave you one more thought, it would be from Corey, who writes, the school of life offers some difficult courses, but is in the difficult class that one learns the most especially when your teacher is the Lord Jesus Christ. The hardest lessons for me were in a cell with four walls. The cell in the prison at Shevingen was six paces in length, two paces in breadth, with a door that could only be opened from the outside. After that time in prison, the entire world became my classroom. No trial believer is wasted. We are students in this bigger classroom called life. And God never wastes a lesson. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for your people today that they would know your goodness and see your wisdom and understand your love. And that for all the trials that are brought in here this morning upon their backs and all that are to come in the year that is ahead, they would know, Lord, that you are with them and that you are using trials to refine their faith. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.